Hey, Internet. It's Saturday. It's early. And we're chilling. That makes this Saturday morning chill. And I really don't know how on earth to introduce this show yet. I just was thinking about that in a little bit of terror before going live. You know, I know I used to always say, hey, Internet, something, 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 something. And then that all changed. And so now what do I say? I don't know. So how is that? I don't know. But I do have a few announcements for you this morning. Some things are very exciting and happening. Like you can see behind me on this side. There you go. You see five copies of, oh, it's a book. It's a book called Without Flesh. It's a book that I was blessed and privileged to write. It was published by CPH and the release date's still a couple of days away. Coming up very close, but somehow, magically, I guess, because I'm the author, I got copies. I got copies and it looks really good. I, um, I, I, I feel, I just got to say again, like honored that this would be something that uh, the the church body that I'm a part of, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, considers important enough, that, that the work that I've done with these writings is important enough to publish and promote. And to have that happen three times, and you can see Broken and Echo back there as well, the big the big poster boards, to have that happen three times, um, it's humbling. It really is. Uh, and so I, I pray that if you do pick up the book, it is a tremendous resource and help to you. Really, it's going to hit you in one of two different places. If you are a sacramentarian, it's probably going to upset you. If you are not, you're going to love it and feel really convicted that uh, that we have something firm to stand on in the Lord's Supper, a heartbeat, which the church just can never die when that heartbeat is strong because that heartbeat is Jesus. Uh, so, you know, and if you're like, ah, ah that can't, that's not true. Well, okay, so read it, get mad at it, and maybe that'd be the third way is you're going to be like, oh yeah, it is true. It is, it is totally why we're having so much trouble. So so that's out and I'm or about to be out and I'm I'm excited about that. So I'll share that with you. Secondly then, the Mad Mondays newsletter, if you don't if you're not signed up for that yet, now's the time. I mean, before it was very much an experiment in how does Fisk juggle things, but it is swiftly becoming something significantly more than that. I went in yesterday to look at the release that's coming up for this Monday and I was stunned by it. It's like, I didn't write this. I did, but I didn't. Uh, My team did, right? And what's happening now is the team is beginning to put their stamp on that newsletter is you're getting a bona fide splash of information you're probably not getting on Fox News. And it really isn't that political, although every once in a while it's going to be. But it, it is just the stuff that, for me, as a pastor, somebody who's devoted his life to the Christian church, when I look out at the world, what did I see this week? that bothers me, that excites me, and, and that I see it as a Christian, right? And and so I'm throwing those things out there as well for you to see them as a Christian. And there's a couple of tidbits and sentences of why this might be something you want to think more about as a Christian, and maybe you don't. There's enough in there, the articles, that you can just skim through and only read the headlines if you wanted to and just see what's going on in the world that you maybe didn't catch from another angle. But uh, my, my point here is that that thing's quickly becoming valuable. And uh, uh, I don't say that because I'm behind it. I say that because when I went back to read it, I was like, wow, I wish I got this newsletter. <laughs> you know, I would like to read this. Uh, and so so you got to you gotta sign up for that. The, the link for that is below uh, in the notes. And then also, though, if you don't like email, and I get it because I'm, I'm in that world. I don't want more newsletters in my inbox. I don't want anything in my inbox. And there's always something in my inbox. I, if that's where you are, then you can also go to revfist.com just kind of throughout the week when you're browsing. And we're trying to get, I don't know if it's quite there yet, but we're trying to get. So all of those articles are then post-releasing as blog articles on revfist.com. So you can see them separately throughout the week along and intermixed with all the video work and all that other stuff that's going on, MP3s, podcasts, you know, whatever. Uh, that's all there on that primary page, just just 
in time, right, as it comes. So if you're not into newsletters, you don't want more email, check it out at riffvis.com. That newsletter content is beginning to post there. But then also, I think I think you're going to be like pleasantly surprised. Like, wow, that's – oh, how do I say it? I want to say it nice. You'll be like, well, that's not Wednesday whatnot. <laughs> hmm. Oh, Brian, my friend Brian, we haven't talked in a couple weeks. I got to get a hold of that guy again soon. Oh, and uh, other announcement. I, if you're experiencing some spike, I just noticed that when I was on issues this week, and that's new to me. I don't think I changed anything, but I did go away and come back and reset up. So there's a chance I did something different with the mic. So if you're noticing that spike, I'm noticing it too. Uh, and I, I'm not quite sure how to fix that yet. And so I apologize for that. I will, I will continue to tinker with that. Um, mm, super chat, super chat is on and I saw somebody used it. I don't understand super chat. I think it means that somehow you get to look more cooler in the chat comments and get attention and like get stuck there, but you have to pay for it. And somehow, you know, Google makes money on that. But then Google says, you know, here, content creator, you can have some scraps of our money for the for that. I really don't know yet what that means. I have not I haven't researched anything. It was just really easy to turn on. And somebody, one of you, asked me why it wasn't on. So it's on now. There is super chat. And you can be a super chatter if that's if that's your thing. <laughs> I don't know. It, I, my guess is if I was 22, I would think that was super cool because I'm an old man now. I just don't care anymore. <laughs> Technology used to be interesting to me. I was like, oh, new stuff. And I still like the coolest stuff, but I don't want to think about it. And I don't want to pay extra for it. I want it to be free and easy. Right? If it's not, I'm like, I'm an old man. I give me my radio. I'm going to turn on my FM and just sit here and, and swear the world isn't changing. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm getting there. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm getting there very closely. So anyway, th those are announcements for this morning. Did you hear the spike? I just did it. Uh, so anyway, those are our announcements for this morning. There was a comment right off the bat in the chat room. Is that what it's called, a chat room? I don't even know. That's what we called it on AOL Online back in the 90s. That was when I was I was hip and young and and really just into this internet thing. Anybody know that sound? I didn't do it very well, but goodness gracious. All right, so there was, there was a comment right off the bat here from Aint Paul in the, uh, the comments and reactions section of YouTube, and he says this. He's question, we have a church within our synod here in Austin. I'm assuming you're going to mean the Missouri synod for the sake of the question, okay? Um, we have a church here in our synod in Austin that is openly promoting women's ordination on their website without the bishop intervening by bishop. I'm assuming you mean district president, but see, you said bishop, so I'm wondering if maybe you are in the ELCA because bishop is the word they use for their district presidents, if I'm not mistaken, um, in which case all the churches in your church body promote women's ordination. Um, I mean, come on, wake up. But but I, I don't know. Now I don't know where you're talking about. It doesn't matter in a sense, but just so you know that uh, the language is a little confusing. Uh we do sometimes, by the way, it's okay to call your DP the bishop or recognize that's the job he does, but his description and title is not bishop. His description and title is district president. And so in like an open public forum question place, if you want to be clear, you would use his official title. So not a big deal at all, but I can't really know or understand for sure uh, what you're getting at. Um, anyway, so Austin, Women's Ordination Congregation Promotion website, and the leader who should be saying something isn't saying something about this. Uh, it's the only major synod here. Okay, so who? Maybe it is the LCA. Well, then you're duh. You're gonna get. No, it's not the only major major synod here. The LCMS is is there. Brian Wolfman is in Austin. Is the only major sin here. Interesting. I'm intending to go into the seminary and be ordained into the church. What should I do? It's a major contention point within the Lutheran church. And so, oh, you're in a different place. All, all. So I read Austin 
and you meant Australia. Talk about confusion. Oh, check that out. Okay, here we go. I should have had this on the screen the whole time. I read Austin, and that's Australia. Oh, how interesting to me. Okay, so you're talking about how within Australia, in an area, probably a district, where you have a bishop. That makes sense now. Women's ordination being promoted. You want to go into the seminary, and you're you're worried because it's a contentious point within the Lutheran Church in Australia. Yes, it has been. I did a podcast on that about a year and a half ago um, that has been voted on numerous times with the result of just under two-thirds supporting women's ordination, and you need two-thirds over in order to actually have it. And so you're really, really close every couple of years on this thing. I've, I've heard about that. I've followed that. It is a disturbing thing indeed uh, because it, it it spells the end of your church body as a Christian church. Not that moment necessarily. All Christians are not there anymore. There's no Christians, but it's the end of End of the beginning? The beginning of the end. It's the beginning of, of the end of orthodoxy, and you got about a generation left to cling to it in corners, and then they're going to come after you eventually. You know, They're, they're going to push you out uh, if, if, you, if you remain faithful. So, um, yeah, w- what should you do? You want to go to seminary? Uh, well, hey, I mean, let's take a step back on this one here and, and strip away the context entirely, and let's just ask the question, you want to go to seminary, what should you do? Gird up your loins, man. Gird up your loins. This ain't a job. It's not a career. It's not something you're going to do to make a living. You're going to war. Get ready for it. You hear me? I mean, I know I just got super serious on you, but it is... It's more than life and death. When a policeman or a soldier rushes toward danger. That's a matter of life and death. This is a matter of immortality and damnation for others, right? It's war. So what are you to do? I don't care what church body, what synod, what problem you're in. I don't care if it's the 1500s, the 1700s, the 300s, or 2023. I mean, like 2020, 30, there you go, whatever. 100 years in the future, 200, 300, 400, I don't care. You're going to go to war. And and every time that there's a generation or an epoch where the church fails so much in its faithfulness that you see generations slip away, you see the loss of Christianity, it's because the guys who went to seminary didn't go to war. They went to rest. They went to sit. Now, it's not every single one of them. Don't get me wrong on that. The faithful are always going to war. But those who go to rest don't like those who go to war. They make them feel guilty. Those who go to war make them feel guilty. And and so as a result of that, uh, well, that's where the war actually is. And the funny thing is you're going to the war because you're convinced in eternal rest. You're convinced that grace is the thing. That Jesus is sufficient. And that's the thing that those who go to rest can't, well, they can't preach that because it causes problems when they do. It gets in the way of the easy and it makes it all hard. So again, wherever you are, if you're planning to go to a seminary and open your mouth to speak the oracles of God, gird up your loins. Because it's going to be a fight. And if you reach the moment where it's not a fight, where there's no cross, well, that's a time to pause and get a little nervous. It shouldn't be easy.
Look, the old evil foe means our deadly woe. With guile and great might, he arms himself for fight. On earth is not his equal. Try believing that. Ephorus fights the valiant one. Indeed. If they hated me, they will hate you. Stand firm. Buckle on the breastplate of righteousness. Grab the shield of faith. Gird up your loins. Now, women's ordination. Women's ordination. Uh, what should you do as an Orthodox pastor in a church body that has women's ordination? You should start a new church body. I'm, I don't know how else to say it. There, there really is no other way to say it. You're not coming back. Once you do it, I mean, uh, get, don't get me wrong. Church bodies have come back. There's one that did in, in Northern Europe, if I'm not mistaken. I don't remember if it's Lithuania. Um, I think it is. Uh, it, it, Latvia. It's one of those two. Lithuania or Latvia. I don't remember which one. Uh, they came back, but it took them generations. And like apostasy level falling apart. Okay? So, I mean, you kind of have an option. You can sit there and expect that and try to enclave within the superstructure of this false church, right? This idol that has become the thing that everyone thinks is church. You can sit in an enclave of that while sharing fellowship. I mean, you have to go into in statue of confessionis. You have to go into a closed communion scenario against the body you're in, in against the communion you're in. Okay. An enclave as an outsider group and try to survive. And you can do that. I'm not sure that's worth your time because what you're going to do then is you're going to put a lot of energy, effort. You're going to make the use of the time that you have in dealing with that body's direct attacks on you and power over you in some ways. Whereas if they drive you out, I mean, I'd try to get driven out first just by being honest. I mean, it wouldn't be like, go be a jerk. Uh, <laughs> but, but if you didn't have to look over your shoulder at all of that, then you could focus on talking to the people who don't know about Jesus yet, who who don't believe at all. And, and it's not because they're like running away from it. It's because they don't know any of it. And so at the end of the day, I know you're supposed to flee false teachers. I don't know how else to say it. It's Romans 16, flee false teachers. I don't know what to tell you, Lutheran Church in Australia. It's a tough fight. You're not done yet. You could still win this thing where you're at, from what I understand. From I understand, your last vote was a few votes better than the previous one. You made ground for the first time in, in quite a while. It wasn't a lot of ground, but it was ground. Well, you should build on that. And I, I think you do that by being active. And I know that that's not exactly the approach you've taken as a whole. And that's what, I mean, you, you play the game you think you need to play. Okay, cool. I would play it a little differently. I'd be pretty active on this one. Because history is so clear of how it gets there and then what it does once it's there. It's very clear what it does to the body once it's there. And the way that it gets there is always through the, the political system. And, I mean, <clears throat> we're going to talk about this here in a moment, I think. Uh, if, you're, if you're giving the best construction to the enemies of the church as they act within the church, you're really not following the Eighth Commandment at that point. The Eighth Commandment is not put the best construction on heresy. It, it really isn't that, right? It's tell the truth. And yeah— when you are in a one-on-one -on -one situation about a friend or a neighbor or even a countryman and their individual motives 
things you can't see or know, you definitely want to put the best construction on that, assuming that they're better people than you are, because it's generally true. That's what original sin means. But, but, you do not have to put the best construction on actual evil that happens. You can just say, that's a thing, right? Oh, that person murdered. Oh, you got to put the best construction. That person killed. Best construction. I mean, there's no best constructioning of that. Doesn't mean you have to say they murdered, therefore they're more evil than me. That's a different thing, right? And that's the tool they use against you to silence you, by the way. That's the game they're playing. But you don't have to play that game. You can just play the game of truth, right? Just the game of truth. And so I, I would be a lot more vocal than you have been, and I would be a lot more intentionally active with the congregations themselves trying to educate uh, in a political way. I mean, if you want, it's a political battle. It's a vote. You're voting on doctrine. That alone means you're not orthodox, right? I mean, just acknowledge that. We, I'll acknowledge it for us when we do it, LCMS. I mean, we're, we're on the verge of heterodoxy all the time. Whenever we vote on doctrine, we've done it more than once. So, so like that's, that's not a, a faithful approach to what the scriptures say. That means that you're in a structure that is for the benefit of the church, but is not the church. And that structure is being taken over by the enemies of the church or trying to be in a first article way. You're fighting on a first article planet. You're not fighting by means of the second article in belief. You're dealing with, to some extent, unbelievers. Now, I don't want to get into the hearts of every single person how much or whether or not they're an actual going to hell unbeliever, but they don't believe the scriptures on this issue. So you're fighting against someone who doesn't believe the scriptures on this issue. That makes them an unbeliever of this issue, which means that they are willing to play dirty. Because they are. They don't believe it in the first place. They're playing dirty to begin with. And their conscience is tied into that. What else are they going to do? You think they're just going to sit there and, and not use the political system and propaganda and communication tools of the present age to get their, their way? They're just going to do it. And I, I, I mean, I would just, I wouldn't take it sitting down. But why? What do you got to lose? And you're going to war, right? Now, what, you know, you might lose your job. Your income. Well, that if you're going to go to seminary today, back to seminary, off women's ordination, back to seminary. If you're going to seminary today, you need another skill set before you start. I mean, really, guys, come on. Look around. Uh, you can't. You're all 21, right? It's hard to look around when you're 21. Just trust me. It'll get better. I, <laughs> it'll, it'll get better. Just give it, give it like four years. Uh, but, so you got to trust me on this one. If you look around with any honesty, you can see that it is harder to make a living right now than it was 20 years ago, <clears throat> or especially 50 years ago. And the boomers say we're lazy, but really we have a very different world. It's very difficult to make what the kind of living, the lifestyle living that was made 30, 40 years ago uh, with, with a minimal education. Today, it really doesn't matter how much education you get. I mean, you're in an entrepreneurial market world, and it is it is powerful. And institutions that just kind of existed taking funds because in the past are really struggling if they don't define themselves as being valuable. And, and American congregations and church bodies have a lot of trouble defining themselves in that way. And so uh, across the spectrum here, you're seeing it's harder to make money for everybody, and then the congregations are increasingly without a reason to be. So if a pastor is there, there's not really a reason to have given enough money to that place for him to make the living that he expects to make given how he grew up, right? What, to, to continue the lifestyle his parents, his parents gave him, right? So because that's a reality like everywhere 
And if it's not immediately there, like there's, oh, wait, there's that congregation and they're pretty big. Right. That's like two or three in a city of millions. Uh, it used to be a lot more than that. So what does this mean? Long and short, it means you need another job. And maybe you won't need to use it, but golly, you want to have that. You want to have that ability because you're at war. And any day, the devil could threaten your wages. That's what he's going to do. And and the Lord will preserve you and protect you. He'll bring you th- through all of this. You have the promises uh, that, he, that he looks out for his children. You have the prayer for daily bread. But daily bread means daily bread, not like lots of it stored up. So like you're not re- – being a pastor and being a Christian and being a preacher, all those things in one does not mean you are not allowed to – work to make a living so that you can preach the gospel somewhere where they can't afford to pay you to preach the gospel there. You hear me? Like, like it is ordained of scripture that the preacher of the gospel should make his living from the gospel. That's there in scripture. That's what's supposed to be. But if you think everything that's supposed to be is the way it is, you got another thing coming. It's not going to be the way it's supposed to be. We are going to be fighting for what it's supposed to be at all times, and there will be ups and downs and all of that. But but at the end of the day, again, right now, for the next 100 years, pastors, those who are going to be pastors, get yourself a blue-collar income capacity. Get yourself a way to make a living. Not a great one, and not one you have to be tied into in some sort of 40 hour a week to pay for the degree you got either. I mean, that's going to stop you from being a pastor for, for a good long while. And you can do the alternate route stuff and all that. But but you, you want that skill set. You can go to tech school for a year or two between high school, college, or between college and seminary and very quickly get vested into a system where you will always be able to make a living. You can come in and out of that thing quite a bit. Work a part time, right? Just, just, just. Don't have to go run and do it today. But trust me, you want to think about that one. What should I do? So that you can go into this fight and not really be too worried about whether or not you end up with a job at the end of it, you want to make sure you can make a living. And you go and you make it so you can make tents with your hands like Paul did. And then you begin to train to preach. You start preaching and you fight the war as you see it in front of you with all honesty, with all charity, with all charity, seeking to save Everyone, your enemy, most especially of all, right? I mean, simply because they're heretics, if and when they are, which in this case, if they're saying that, they, they effectively are, that there's a Trinitarian issue. I'm going to maintain that. Uh, that doesn't mean that you want them to go to hell or you want them to be unbelievers. You, you generally, I generally, genuinely uh, want them to believe. I want them to believe that that's freedom in life. That's truth. So, I mean, you know, you, you go at the war as a war of love. And I want to make this very clear as well from earlier, because there are other religions in the world that when they say go to war, they mean a very different thing. I'm not talking about any kind of jihad. No, 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 Christians are not pacifists, but we are not violent outside of the authority structures in which we are placed. We only exercise violence according to the authority of the sword, which is a first article issue yet again. And not a matter of the church. So there, there is no going to war with actual weapons. There is no violence. It's a war of peace. It's a war of weakness. It's a war of losing. It's a war of being hated. But it's a war of words that are not weak. And words that, while peace, also bring a sword. 
a sword that splits law and gospel, a sword that splits bone and marrow, a sword that splits life and spirit, and does this to make you raise from the dead. Ah, what a thing. But, gird up your loins, man. And yeah, and, and if if they're not letting go once they get it, and you got 100 years minimum of real disaster on your hands. So, personally, I as a young man would be active in that church body, trying to talk to people who think this is a bad idea and saying, so what are we going to do? Because once they get control, we're kind of done. How do we survive without all these systems we think we need so much, that we're spending so much money on? Is there a way that we could do that more easily. And yeah, we're going to be smaller. I don't want to tell you. I guess maybe then, at that point, focusing on ways to talk about what we believe to the people around you so they can hear you and, and at least understand enough to reject you rather than reject some shadow that they've already got conceived of in their head. Maybe you should focus on that instead of worried about trying to convince the heretic to stop being a heretic when they're just they're just rock hard conscienced into that thing. I mean, you will try a conversation, but once they've rejected this, it, like, I mean, it's like a, it's a massive distraction. What a ploy! Think of how the devil does this. You know, he comes in and he distracts us. He distracts us. So, okay, that made me think about. Let me go make sure I know what this thing is over here. There it is. I have a couple of thoughts, and I'm going to share some of them this morning, but not necessarily all of them. But. Uh, one, as I was wrestling with the Augsburg Confession, Articles 7 and 8, and applying it to some other things just in terms of life and ministry and my experience, I, I, I wrote this down, and I wanna, I'm going to ponder it now in front of you. So maybe it's not, it's not fully true as I'm going to say it initially, but, but I think it is. I think it's what it means. So, so Augsburg Confession 8 means you have to believe in two things. It means you have to believe... In evil people, and you're like, well, I already believe all people are evil and sinners. No, that's not what I mean, actually, at this point. I mean in people that are only evil, that want to be evil, that, that think lying is okay. You have to believe that's possible. And then, oh, there were two. Oh, yeah. And then you have to believe that there are people who are like that, who can outwardly look and act like Christians their entire life long and die looking and acting like Christians, but they don't believe it at all. That's what Augsburg 8 says. So, so Augsburg Confession, I'm not going to go into the history of it. You can look that up. But 7 and 8 are both articles. That means things that talk about sections, segments, ideas, dealing with the church, the assembly of believers throughout time and space by Jesus Christ, according to his word, the congregation of the faithful, every Christian that's ever been, however you want to say it. Okay? The church. Ecclesia. So 7 says the church is... The perfect, redeemed, called out of darkness into light people of God in Jesus, all who have faith in Jesus, those who are baptized into Jesus, all Jesus' faithfulness, right? It's just, it's all faithful. There's nothing evil. There's nothing wicked. There's nothing sinful. It is pure and spotless and clean because Jesus is, and anyone who's in him is that way, and that's who this church is. Seven. Eight. You never get to see this. You just get to believe in it. And what you see instead is something that outwardly looks like it could almost be that, but it's filled with hypocrites. Go read it. Go read it. Augsburg 8. There must be hypocrites in the church. 
Now, it's really hard to believe. If you take it on the level of not just they don't believe, but if you take it on the level of they're actively evil in the congregation. And you don't know and can't see necessarily. I mean, the only time this would ever be revealed is what we were just talking about. When the scriptures are like, well, this is obvious. And they're like, I mean, excuse me, but hell no, they are. Uh, when they take that approach, right? When, when they are, when they will not consider what the scriptures say, but instead insist on their own human way, which oftentimes ends up, and you can see this as a pastor a little bit. I mean, there's pagan tendencies in all of us, but when they start choosing the pagan tendencies, not violently, but like with an emotional hardness, okay? Once that starts to happen, you're, you're, in, you're in danger of this, if nothing else. Now, I don't, I'm not saying as a pastor, you go out and you try to pinpoint it. No, you just, just be aware that it's out there. And, and so this is where this came up pondering for me again. We had to read a book in seminary and I cannot for the life of me remember of it, remember the name of it. But it was something to do with demonic possession, but not really, just believing that there are liars. And as a pastor being ready for a world in which the devil does exist and he doesn't show you himself, but he does have liars that he sends in. Now, sometimes in some areas, you might refer to this as, say, the alligator in the church. But see, that's kind of pastor and unfortunately... I mean, it's kind of sad, really, uh, as, as a word and a term. It's pastor jargon for a member who really just has it in for you. Like, they just hate you. Uh, and so you might call them your alligator, or I've got a couple alligators. They're, and sometimes that term can even be used to mean, you know, they're just kind of choppy. Like, they just kind of, they're grumpy all the time. And that's not really what this book was about at all. It's not about that kind of a loose thing, because it's almost like a term of endearment, alligator. Not quite, but almost. It can be. Um, and what we're talking about here is like diabolical action by humans. And I remember reading the book and, and it was basically saying, look, we as churches, and it was a Protestant writing this, but I think it applies. We as churches don't really believe this. We really don't believe that there's people that are going to show up at the church. They're going to want to join the church and they're going to be there more or less to destroy the church, not by closing the doors, but by just over time changing what the church believes to not be what the scriptures say. Now, gently, nicely, friendly, funly, you know, all that. Uh, and, and we don't believe that. And that when this happens, they will play dirty. They will fight dirty. They will not only use the rules against you, they will break the rules. And they will do this with, with, with awareness of what they're doing even. They'll know what they're doing. And you know, again, I'm reading this book and it's like, wow, that's terrifying. That's scary. Dear Lord, have mercy on me. I'll, I'll be ready. I'll try. I'll, I'll know this is out there. And then I haven't even thought about it until this year. I mean, I just forgot about it. And then I'm reading Article 8 again, which I've done many times, but I, you know, I'm reading it. It's like, wait a minute now. Let's put all this thing together here. I should just know when I go to church that there's unbelievers there and that they will talk sometimes, like say in a voters assembly, and say things that don't make any sense with regard to being a Christian. And they will try to, to, to move the church away from Christianity with what they said. I just got to know that's, that's there. And be aware of then that they're not above you know, telling lies outside of public places, spreading rumors and gossip and trying to harm everybody. Now, does that mean anybody who does that is not a Christian? No, necessarily. I don't know. You don't know. But you just got to know that someone out there is going to do that. Right? They're going to do that. AC8 means believing in evil people and evil people in the church. We don't even do this when we're not at the church. Really? I mean, think about this. 
golly, do we trust the world. We're so, so pie in the sky, blind, rosy glasses. You really think that people who are making millions or even billions of dollars a year personally are just in it in life, you know, for the good. You really think that what what governments are doing kind of always is really with your best interest in mind. It has nothing to do with whether, you know, that individual gets reelected and what their retirement and package and family legacy looks like. Nothing to do with that. They They put all that aside and they only care about you. See, we're so evil. I've told this story before, but it just sums it up very, very well. On my vicarage, I didn't have dental coverage. And and so I got, for the first time in my life, two cavities. Uh, yeah, because I wasn't going to a dentist for a while. <laughs> but but at the end of the year there, I did have a dentist in the congregation that I learned was a member there. I was like, oh, can you help me? I need a guy. You know, I need some help. And he uh, he did. And, and we he, he put a filling in. And um, and then we had a conversation. We chatted for like 30 minutes afterwards. And I hope he didn't make his other patients late. But, and I don't know why he told me this. I don't remember any other part of the conversation, but I remember him talking about how disturbed he was by the way that medicine was being influenced by pharmaceuticals. And it wasn't like, I'm, I'm mad that there's Novocaine. I think we should, you know, Novocaine's from the devil. We don't want to use it. It was, it was just him noticing how the promotions of various new types of things were tied to benefits, personal lifestyle benefits for the dentists who would use them. So there's a new thing from this pharmaceutical company. If you sell this much of it, you get a cruise, right? Like that kind of thing. And he said, just as a dentist who wants to be a good dentist, I am alarmed by how much this is, how many, how many of my colleagues just do this and never even research the stuff. They just take the sale I don't know how it came to him, you know, the, 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 the catalog and they, they just pitch it and it's just their life as a dentist is I'm going to clean your teeth. Cause I was taught to do that. I'm going to pitch whatever I was told to pitch. Now, is that dentist malicious? I don't think so. Is that dentist working for himself? Yes. And we shouldn't be surprised. That's my point right now. We're so surprised. We don't even know. We don't even know. This is how we are. All of us are like this. Christians just don't want to be. <laughs> and there's enough grace in Jesus that we can, you know, call ourselves it and like, and, and start to talk about it. Call it what it is, not try to pretend that everybody's all happy and peaceful all the time, because we're not. We're just not. AC8 means believing in evil. So again, back to your question about seminary, right? I mean, just be, be ready for it. You're not, you're not there to see it. You're not going to be able to see who's who until the moment when you're really in the fight, when their sort of words is out and they've marshaled their troops in whatever area in order to make a real gambit and attack on the faith, you're going to see it. Uh, but otherwise, you're not going to be, you cannot be able to tell. When they are saying we're going to vote for women's ordination, it's a sign, it's a big flag that the scriptures are not true. And it's not just that corner. It never is just that corner. It's an approach to believing anything. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's the fight you're signing up for. And, and so, should I go to seminary? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> just don't think it's something that it's not. It is. This is not. It's our grandfather's church, but it's not our grandfather's world. Not at all. So get ready. And they were in their own fight. The more I look at the old stuff, I wish I wish I could I had more access to letters of guys like uh, Peeper and Walther. Not so much their big public letters, that is what we have access to, but like what they wrote short to each other that just would never have been saved. It would have been very private about the fights they were having. Because we'd see how I mean they're the heroes of the Missouri Synod in some ways, right? But they were they were they were locked in battle the entire time. Yeah. And it just happened to be on top and be followed by a majority, but uh, it was always there and it always will be. So we got to be ready for that. Got to be ready for that. So good morning, everybody. That was, that was a long stretch of talk. It is Saturday morning chill again. Um, and uh, I want to get to more of your questions, but I got a few like in the, in the comments, but I got a few that are lined up here uh, on the side. So I'm going to go ahead. These are from redfist.com slash contact. I want to get to those first here. Uh, we'll leave some of my thoughts behind. Let's go ahead and, oh, yeah, while we're talking, you know, somewhat controversial-ish stuff, let's go ahead and jump to this bit here. Now I got to make sure I do that. And I, I'm looking for resources to explain to my ELCA family why I cannot and will not take communion in their church as a member of an LCMS church. Their main criticism of my decision is that it's creating disunity among the family and that we, the LCMS, are the ones creating the divisions. I've tried to explain that I cannot go up to the altar. Altar has an A in it, by the way, just so you know. I used to make the same mistake regularly. Uh, A-L-T-A-R. Altar at the church, that doesn't... Because altar, the way you have it spelled, by the way, is like like you would change something. You altered it, right? Uh, as opposed to an altar... I don't know the etymology of it. Um, so uh, I, I've tried to explain I can't go up to the altar at a church that doesn't preach the inerrancy of the scriptures and the true presence in the body and blood, but I do not have the right words to get my point across in a way that is loving and not compromising. Ain't that the trick? Well, when they don't want to admit that you're loving and they're going to say you're not no matter what you say, of course you won't have the right words. And they're just angry because what you're doing is you're making them smell the stench of their own death and damnation. Not that they're all damned, but the, the stench of their sin. They're having to smell it and they don't like it, right? So it doesn't matter how you say it. There's no way to say put on deodorant and have people like what you said. Right? You just can't do it. You can't do it, right? Hey, so you know, honey, I love you so much. And um, um, could you maybe just, you know, go go to the bathroom for a moment and, and you know, that's fun. Could you do that? And, you know, nobody is going to take – it doesn't matter how nice you say it. No, it doesn't matter how nice you say it. So so don't look for things that aren't there. But, okay, um, if you already have – if you already have resources for this, please point me in the right direction. We do not. I do not. There – ah. Ah, come on, wire. I've been wrestling with how to talk about closed communion to those who don't have our jargon for a while, I would say. I mean, it's been a long, a long thought process, but it's usually kind of been stuck in sort of a, a circle that doesn't get out of itself. And the last six months, I've, I've spent a lot more effort on this one. And I still, I really don't know how to talk about it. I, I, I have no idea. I've, I don't know how to talk about it so much that even though I give an announcement before communion, after the sermon before communion, every single week, I stop the service, I come down, and I talk about closed communion. I've been doing it for over a year and a half now here. And just this last week, the announcement was, 
I want you to know that I don't know how to talk about closed communion in a way that makes sense and doesn't offend people. And I'm trying to figure it out. And I think it can be done. I think it can make sense to us. And that's what I'm going to keep doing here during this time as I explain it. And I said that because I want everyone else to know, like, this is not easy to talk about. We just don't have tools for talking about this. And my hunch on this, by the way, but this has not been, this is the kind of thing that really would be good to have debated at like a theological symposia instead of Seminex again, like to actually debate something like what I'm about to say and try to figure out uh, where the place, where the best place for it is. I have a I have a, a hunch that the reason we don't know how to talk about closed communion is because of our practical stance on the office of the ministry. We have, out of fear of our past in the Missouri Synod, and this has affected tremendously other synods like unto ours, like the Wells, out of fear of our past, we have we have in some ways neutered the masculinity of the office of the ministry, uh, and not simply by you know, just leading toward women's ordination per se, but by neutering it as a a source and center of the congregation, uh, as a chief part of the articles of our faith, as Jesus' own presence in our midst in yet another way. And now that all sounds really hoity-toity. Let me just say it a completely different way. I don't think you can understand close communion unless you understand that communion is part of pastoral care. Communion is part of how your pastor takes care of you as your pastor. And that means, the word means shepherd. You, sheep, him, shepherd. Under shepherd of Jesus, yes. Certainly, in his flesh, a hireling. Absolutely, but nonetheless, as a called and ordained servant of the word, right? As one set apart to do things with his mouth for the sake of the congregation, his job is to shepherd you. And closed communion is part of that. Now, we never talk about that because we don't like giving that much authority to the pastor. Now, you go back and you read Walther on this. It's going to be about, you know, the pastor's only authority is the word of God. But at that time, that meant a lot more than it does now. And so we've, we've really stripped the theory of this thing. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly how to, to talk about it yet, right? But I think there's something there. There's something there. And, and there's also something stepping outside of the thought that I'm communing. Now, you are, for sure. Don't get me wrong. But but really, you're not. When you, not, not, communing is happening and you are there. Yeah? But it's not I. It's we. We're communing. We together are communing with Jesus. He is with all of us at one time. That idea, I'm not sure we have a way to talk about that or understand it because we're so hyper-individualistic. Everything is, is just my own identity, my own thoughts, my own decisions. I mean, the, the communal ability of, of Western Civ to see itself as, as plural I mean, it's even there in our language that the word you doesn't have a plural way of being. We can't speak a plural you distinct from individual. You is mainly an individual word even when you say it to a group, right? We're so individual. 
And close communion, historically, like the reason it's there and the reason the Bible talks about it is because when you commune, it's not an individual. You are being put into common union with all those people in Jesus. And the question ultimately is, as a group, are they in Jesus? Not as any individual in Jesus, which is where they want to be. That's their whole fight. But as a group, are you in Jesus? And if you love me, you'll keep my word. And if you don't keep my word, I don't know you. I mean, it's just that simple. And so so a body that's intentionally, intentionally denying the word of God, uh, you can't have common union with it. Now, again, I don't think, I don't think any of this is going to convince them. And I, I want to acknowledge also that the heterodox, the heterodox have these, these lies in their midst without necessarily fully dis, uh, divorcing themselves from Christ. And that applies to really anybody who's still got the Trinity, which is why women's ordination is such a big deal, because it's going to attack the Trinity eventually. Uh, but it's not as though you're saying when I will not commune with this other body that therefore they're going to hell. That's not it at all. It's that therefore they have a significantly different view of Jesus. Uh, They have a significantly different belief in what it means to be unified with Jesus. And so there is no common union. There isn't a common union. So if you want to use the Lord's Supper to smother over the divisions which will uh, destroy us, to sweep it under the rug like some dust, well, then that's what we're saying. We we can't join in that. If there's an issue that's so prevalent that it could upend the Trinity as something we believe in, then we can't just be unified with that as a group. We can't do it. And, you know, when you as an individual would go to another church, just this is how real this is. When you as an individual that communes at an Orthodox church would go to another church and commune there, you're making the whole congregation you go back to commune with, commune with them too. You're bringing the leaven in, whether you know it or not. Right? So we don't want to do that. We want to we strive to hold firmly to the trustworthy word as has been taught. But so here's, here, that's kind of where your question goes, Right? So their main criticism is that it is creating disunity among the family, caps on family, that's interesting, and that we, LCMS, are the ones creating the division. So that's really, really convenient, isn't it? Isn't it convenient when someone gets to say how it's all your fault and then you have to prove that it's not your fault and it's just in an interpersonal conversation and we're not talking like you've been arrested or anything like that? I mean, at that point, you do got to prove it, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, isn't it, isn't it weird? Isn't it weird? Isn't it weird that the conversation begins with, you do this, it's evil. And if you say that we do evil, that's why you're evil. (laughs) Right? Like, talk about silencing people. Talk about just being rude. Right? Just being rude. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, disunity among the family. I love it. I love it. (laughs) It's hopeless, my friend. I mean, I don't mean to be rude. But like, like, don't assume or think you're going to talk your way through this and have everyone be happy with you. They're just not. They're not. The, you know what Jesus said about this? Jesus verses, like, right, you know, you're creating disunity in the family. It was like, yeah, that's what I came to do. 
That's what Jesus says. I came to set mother against father and, uh, and, and son-in-law against father-in-law. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. So, and like, like, that's not an argument. Now, it doesn't mean every time you create division, therefore you're doing Jesus' work. But like when someone says, that created division, like that doesn't mean it's not Jesus. <laughs> Jesus creates division. That's what he does. He said he was going to. Uh, so you got that side of it. But then division can also be a bit of a relative term, don't you think? Like, what are we divided about and from? Like, I still like pizza. Actually, well, I do. I just don't eat it much. But, but like, you know, am I creating division on that matter? I'll still watch Star Wars with you or whatever, right? Am I creating division there? So why why is the fact that I don't want to join at your altar? Oh, is it because it's your religion and you're justifying yourself and because I won't do it, it makes you question whether you're justified? Is that really what's going on? Oh, wait, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And so it's a matter of you wanting me to convert to your religion. And I actually have enough scruples with my religion to not do it. And that upsets you, that my religion to me means more than your religion. You narcissist. Dear heavens. That is what it is. It is so much what it is. And so much of what open communion is, is our bowing to narcissism. We're straight up doing it. Some guy walks in off the street. I've never met him before. This is the holy of holies, the sacred reality of immortality being given to the congregation of the saints. And he wants to just walk up and get some without talking to me. And you think, I'm the mean, divisive one. <laughs> what? You know, are, are you a member of this club? And it's not a club. But like, like, where would you do that? Even in a shopping mall, you wouldn't do it like that. You know, it's, it's just insane. Walmart, maybe, you know. You just go in and assume you're going to get whatever you want just because you say you want it, but but you just you just wouldn't do that. So so the the accusation is so self-centered and arrogant and so unwilling to have a conversation at all and so self-defensive, so cowardly that you can't expect to answer it. Okay, now you do want to love them, you want to speak to them, but you got to do it knowing, knowing that they are going to accuse you of being the one who divides while they do the dividing. The hypocrisy of unbelief is okay lying, and it lies first to itself. They're not necessarily lying with the full awareness of the lie, although sometimes they are, but first they lie to themselves, and then they believe it. They believe it so much that they have to get you to believe it too so they can keep believing it. So they start telling the lie to you, thinking it's truth, so they can believe it's truth. And when you say, no, it's a lie, then they're like, oh, my whole system of justification, my freedom to go and be licentious, everything that I get to do and never think about God. You're threatening that. And you should, instead of being like, I'm sorry, I feel bad, we're close community, we're mean, be like, yeah, damn right I'm threatening that. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to face the judgment. I mean, and when I say damn right, I really mean that. I'm not talking, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm speaking an expletive in some sort of cavalier way. Like this is a matter of immortality and damnation. And although I don't, I still don't think I have a good way to talk about close communion at all. I don't think this has been good. I think this has been insufficient. I'm not going to pretend for a moment that it is not a matter of immortality and salvation. If the scriptures teach it, and they definitely teach pastoral care, and they definitely teach the unifying of the saints in the scriptures and in the sacrament itself and in the action, the participation in Christ. And they definitely teach to flee false teaching. And they definitely teach to be careful with, quote-unquote, outsiders and how you let them see you. Even, even says all that stuff. 
So if you believe that, it really doesn't matter if they criticize you for it. And But that's where we're caught, right? Because for us in this age, to be not criticized is a virtue. Isn't that weird? That's a virtue. We don't even really have official virtues and vices anymore. It'd be very helpful to have like a seven deadly sins of America and a seven virtues of America or of Western state, whatever you want to call it. It'd be very helpful to try to figure out, you know, uh, when you when you have to signal virtue, what is it? Because it's surely not humility anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it, it's 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 not being criticized. Yeah. Or not criticizing. And yet we're doing it all the time. It's so weird. What a mess. I've tried to explain it. I don't have the right words. I think the right words are, honestly, I mean, in in your home, it's something like, hey, mom, look, I really appreciate how much you want to be unified with me. I just need you to understand that my conscience is bound on something, and it's a good thing for me. And if you love me, then you can consider me the weaker brother in the faith and bear with me because that's what Christians do is they bear with each other. And so if you'd be so kind as to bear with me in my belief on this, I think that would be helpful for our unity, our real unity. We'd be more unified if, if you could have mercy on me. Since you think I'm wrong, since you think I'm teaching something that is from, you know, is sinful, then what I need is your forgiveness. I need you to bear with me and walk with me. And my conscience is here. So we can talk about it more. But, you know, what are you supposed to do with people who are outside of your faith? Are you supposed to go and condemn them all the time? No. So if I'm outside of the communion that you think I should be in, the answer is not to condemn me. The answer is to have mercy on me. And isn't that what it's about? Isn't that what you're telling me? It's all about love and mercy. So why am I not, why am I not feeling any? And then cry if you can and then walk away. You know, um, and I, but I'm, I'm fully serious. Like that is not feigned. That is not feigned. Uh, so, you know, close communion. What a thing. What a thing. All right. So I want to, oh, I want to get to this one. I want to get this one. Okay. So if you were to get a Lutheran tattoo, this one's going to be fun for me. Hold on. There we go. If you were to get a Lutheran tattoo, what would it be? I thought about getting Crux Sola Est Nostra Theologia or Verbum Domine Manet Eternum. I thought it was Et eternum. Um, uh, or maybe the Trinity Shield. I would not do the Trinity Shield because it ultimately doesn't work. It breaks down and doesn't really teach us who God is. It makes a fourth figure that is sort of, it's like Voltron God, it's partialism a little bit. Um, and, and I mean, it's not, but it is. And so I, I just wouldn't get the image out because it, it can be misunderstood very easily. Uh, so, but before we do that, I, I probably should talk about tattoos, don't you think? Because don't you know the Bible says don't have tattoos? I mean, it's really clear, you know, it's, it's right there in Leviticus. Don't have tattoos. So if you have tattoos, you're not a Christian. There you go. You know, you just got to stop. That's the argument and it will be made and it is made. I remember so vividly when I wrote an, my first article for the Lutheran Witness, I was so blessed. Adrian Hines, uh, she, you know, reached out to me on this young pup pastor with a little bit of YouTube stuff. She said, you want to write an article for the witness? I'm like, oh, the heavens have descended to give me glory. I shall chase the, the grand value of this. And I, I wrote this little article called Why the Co- Small Catechism Totally Rocks. 
And it was an okay article. I, I don't remember other than it was kind of like a pre-echo sort of thing. And then it came out in The Witness, and I thought it looked really cool. It was a two-page spread, and they had like a fairly muscular arm gripping a small catechism, like the maroon one, right? But there was also just a like a tribal tattoo on the guy's arm. I thought, well, that looks okay. That's pretty kind of cool looking. And then, like, like two weeks later, I'm in Naperville at this point. Two weeks later, I get an, a, a, a you know handwritten letter, you know, kind of old person writing. My my writing's worse than old person writing, so I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. But elderly writing, um, you know, and, and you know, Pastor Fisk. And I don't know who this is. I have no idea who this is. I, there's a name on it. It's from some other state, right? And, you know, these days I'd be like, oh, I don't know what's in this. But, uh, uh, you know, I open it, I read it, and it's a, it's an elderly gentleman, and he is excoriating me, me, for uh, not knowing that tattoos are uh, – you can't be a Christian and have tattoos and that I'm leading people to hell with my article that I wrote <laughs> about tattoos apparently. And, uh, I mean, he was really upset about this. And uh, – I, I don't think he's alone. I share that story because I don't think he's alone in thinking this. And so if you are a Christian who has tattoos, you just got to know, like, there's a whole generation of people that really do believe, like, smoking is okay and tattoos are not, right? Like, that that's what they think. Um, and, and they maybe have come along with smoking is not okay either, but, you know, uh, greed is okay and smoking is not. Uh, and they maybe haven't even done I, I shouldn't I shouldn't bash them too hard. Um, they have their own pet sins that they don't look at. But tattoos would be one that... They're righteous because they didn't do it, and if you do it, you're not righteous. You know how do you, how do you distinguish that from say the real deadly sins that destroy things? Um, well, that's what I'm going to try to do here. Uh oh, what just happened? Come back here, you. So that's what I'm going to try to do here a little bit. But just just know how different it is, how culturally different it is, and it's it's kind of like trying to teach grandpa to use a, a smartphone, right? Or great grandpa to use a smartphone. Like it's almost not worth your time trying not. Not because they're dumb. It's not that. It's that you just don't want to hurt them. Like, don't even tell them. Don't show them. Don't try to have them understand, right? So just know that is part of the thing that you got to deal with. But then we do have to deal with the actual theology of it. So can a Christian get a tattoo? Is it okay to take a needle and put ink in your arm so that that ink stays there afterwards? As a Christian, do you have the freedom to do that or not? Now, there are other things that come into play with this. There are things of wisdom and foolishness. Uh, th there are things of, of what you say in the context. I mean, if everybody who worships Baal gets the exact same tattoo, do you want to go and get the exact same tattoo? Well, no, probably not. You know, Christian freedom doesn't really mean that. So it's not like it's just this, this carte blanche, live however the heck you feel like living. That's not it. But, but it is important to see that inking the body as a prescription against, right? Not You're not allowed to do this. That is an old covenant reality on par with circumcision, on par with eating pork. And so if you're going to say things like, you can't have tattoos, it's a sin, then you also have to say, you can't eat pork. But of course, the Bible very clearly says you shouldn't say that. There's a whole section of, of Acts where Peter is shown that the first article, the created order, has never been and is not the problem. There is no food that is unclean so far as morality is concerned. Is there food that's better for you and worse for you? Yes, absolutely. That's the first article issue. That's, exactly, you know, that's where wisdom comes in. But in terms of actually being morally wrong, is it morally wrong to eat a pig? 
and morally right to eat a cow. No, there is not a moral ethic involved. Could one be healthier and less healthy? Yes, of course. Of course. So, so that's the realm we're in, though, here. And if you want to take the route that, well, it was only food that was lower down the blanket, okay, fine. Then you're trapped in a world of just food. There are other things. I hope you're circumcising your boys on the eighth day. I hope you found the Ark of the Covenant so you can continue making sacrifices at it. I mean, it just is endless. It's endless the things you would have to do if you're going to say tattoos, that verse about tattoos is applicable to the New Testament. The whole Levitical codes becomes applicable suddenly. And so you're throwing Hebrews out. You're throwing Galatians out. I mean, you're, just, you're losing everything, okay? So, so for me— that's where this is like so obvious, but, but we got to realize there's a whole generation this is not obvious at all. And you should be really careful how you say it, too. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, it is, in fact, in your freedom to engage the first article with a belief that you want to do good and not evil. And that the New Testament has plenty of more general specifications of what good is, but we also can see that the Ten Commandments summarizes it pretty well. You don't keep the Ten Commandments just because it's in the book of Numbers. You keep it because having been in the book of Numbers, it's a type, it's a reflection. It's the same truth that will show up in the New Testament era, not as a code for earning righteousness, but as a description of what redemption into perfection looks like, what the perfect world looks like and should be. But not everything that was part of the Hebrew culture enshrined at Sinai is that. A lot of it's just a shadow of that. There's not going to be a temple in the world to come because Jesus is it. That's why it got destroyed in 70 AD. So you have all sorts of issues there that you're going to undo the moment you start saying, well, you know, tattoos are different. Well, there's just no way in the text to do it. And, and someone might say, well, what about homosexuality then? Because that's always kind of the big thing. And this is the same argument that the liberals will make against your Leviticus argument of, against homosexuality. They will come in with this, well, that's context, and you got pork, and you got different types of clothing, you know, mixing cotton polyester. Oh, that's wrong too now, okay? So you're stupid, and let homosexuality be normal. Well, their argument is fair, because you shouldn't be arguing from Leviticus in the first place. I mean, really. If you're going to argue Christianity, you shouldn't argue from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is for Christians to dig deeper into understanding what the New Testament means. But the New Testament is the clear mirror, right? When Paul says we see through a light dimly, he means the Old Testament. The days are coming when we will know even as we are known. That, that's the New Testament. That's the clear light. And so we should pay attention to it. As Peter says in 2 Peter, pay careful attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And then you go back and you can see how it's all the same as what the Old Testament teaches. But then in this regard, the issue with tattoos has a lot more to do with not looking like the pagans around you in their religious practice and not worshiping the foreign gods, which they were having all sorts of trouble doing anyway. It has a lot more to do with that and a lot less to do with you know the branding market of American stylization, which is really what's going on now. It's, it's a way to brand yourself, like literally, it's what a brand is, right? You put on a cow. Uh, to brand yourself with an identity or a connection point that in our market-driven, uh, ideology-driven, weird way of engaging as, as internet-influenced, back-of-the-head plug people, you know, it's, it's a way of making statements about what you believe. It's a way of confessing, in fact. Tattoos today are a way of confessing what you believe, whether it's your religion or otherwise. Uh, just like the shirt you wear is always something. And, and sometimes it's, it's nothing, and sometimes it's something really serious. But we're doing this all the time, whether we know it or not. And we're being led by the nose through a lot of it. Uh, but, but, but it's there, right? That, so when people are getting tattoos 
out in the culture around us, it can be part of their religion, but really it's part of their statement of what they believe. First. And to say Christians can't do that, I mean, you can, I guess you can state what you believe by not being tattooed, but you can't say that's the only way to do it as a Christian. You, there's just no biblical way to do that unless you're going to start implementing all the Old Testament laws. And, you know, if you want to do that, the Seventh-day Adventists are waiting for you with arms open. Come home to Seventh-day Adventism. They're ready for you. Yeah. Uh, so with that said, with that said, what would I do? First off, fair disclosure. There's sitting one right there. It's been there since I was 18. I probably would do it differently. It's a couple of dragons. It's a little faded because I'm an old man. Um, and they do kind of fade. So that's something to know. They're not what they are your whole life long. Uh, they need to be touched up, which I've never done with this one. And or uh, they need to be covered at times just because they've gotten so old you can't see them anymore. And that can affect the way it looks. So there, there are issues with like, what do you look like? Right? You know, how does this impact people around you? Uh, is it clean? Uh, are there diseases involved? Uh, now, most places in the States these days are going to be when the disease part comes up, they're going to be very clean. They're going to show you the needle before they, they use it. It's being open, fresh, and all this kind of stuff. And if your buddy's got a, a tool in his garage and he's going to show, you know, tattoo the Tasmanian devil on your thigh, I'd say no. <laughs> uh, uh, but but uh, so there's, there's different there's different wisdom applied to this thing, right? So we're not I'm not going to get into all of that. You just want to talk about like like what to do um, and what you're thinking about. So crux sola no, es nostra theologia, right? Uh, the cross alone is our theology, or the cross is the only way to know God. I love that. The cross is the only way to know God. So that's a text. Maybe you'd put that on your forearm, just kind of down the side, and Latin's really cool and all. I mean, that, that, yeah, sure, that's fine. I don't know. My biggest thing with tattoos is 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 more about like their placement. I think a lot of them look really, really bad. <laughs> uh, they just, they look off center or, or asymmetrical. They make when you when you do a tattoo that asymmetrizes your body, that does not look good to me. It looks like you know, like a cow brand just got stamped on your you know your butt cheek or something. You know, it's like what what is, this just doesn't fit. You know, it's really weird. Um, but if you can find a way to make uh, the cross alone is how we know God uh, something that that people see and ask about and you talk about, like that's cool. Um, Verbum dominates, so the, the word of the Lord endures forever. Also very cool. Um, so, uh, but your question is, you know, if, if I were to get it, what would it be? Cause I've thought about this in recent years. Cause I have this tattoo of these dragons that I got when I was 18. It is, it's fine. It, it was cool when I got it. It was, it was a hundred bucks. Uh, she did a good job. It's original. There's nothing wrong with it. I almost, I basically never see it. I just, I just don't even see it anymore. Um, but I've thought about like, well, that doesn't really say anything about my faith. You know, people ask me when they learn about, you know, why'd you get dragons? And my, my, my amazingly well thought answer is I like dragons. <laughs> it's very childish is what an 18 year old would do. So I, let me say this, um, stopping right now, kids, not till you're 25. The loss is 18. I'm telling you right now, like you go and, and say that, that I said all this and someone gets mad at me because oh, you're telling my kids. No, I didn't. I didn't tell any kids to get a tattoo. 25 soonest. Why? Because that's when your brain finally starts working. That's when you can actually see consequences of your actions and imagine things further away than a year. Okay. So until, until that happens, you shouldn't put anything permanent on your body. Just, just saying. Yeah. Okay. So not till 25, but, and this is proof. I've got this thing. I'm like, what is this here for? I look like it. Uh, I'm an 18 year old. You know, I mean, it's, I'm in, sorry, 18 year olds, you're, you're young men and young women too. You're not, you're not grunts, but wisdom Wisdom listens first. I'm going to tell you what. I was 18. I was a grunt. I was a fool. I wasn't dumb. I was just, I was just a fool. 
Okay. So, so hmm, go easy on that. I thought about it, covering it, and getting something else. And one of the things I really thought would work well, and again, you can see there's like two winged creatures here, right? I've thought, what if you had this become two cherubim, and they had the Lord's Supper, chalice in the middle. Um, I even at one point had someone do some sketching uh, on me for that, and then we never followed through with it. Um, uh, so I've thought about that. I've also thought about on the front forearm. Um, oh, so so that would just be, by the way, you have you have the Christ symbol, uh, the Cairo in the middle of it, but there wouldn't be any words per se, but you would, it would be, I think, very clearly a confession of uh, Christ's presence in the supper with angels, archangels, all the company of heaven, that kind of thing. Um, I've thought about also, though, on the forearm, having something that would be like two keys in a cross, like an X, right? And a Kai, basically. And then one key would be like, made of gold with like green leaves growing out of it and the other key would be made of of like bone with like thorns growing out of it so they'd be crossed there um and then um, i'm gonna lose the greek in my own head um it's like oh hold on i can almost get it it's uh akuo no akua akua uh, uh humace akua hum, that's wrong though it's not humace uh akua humon uh, Akua Humo, hum, Human. Mm, mm, I can't remember. I'll just, I'm trying Greek if right on the top of my head, right? Um, but what it would translate as, and I have it written down somewhere, what it would translate as is, He who hears you hears me. So for me, that tattoo is about the power of the office of the ministry and its responsibility, both the keys, the key to bind, the key to unleash, and the fact that. Speaking the word of God is not speaking your own mind, it's speaking Christ's mind. And so when someone doesn't hear it, they're not hearing him. And that's not a freedom, a carte blanche freedom to think I'm right about everything, right? But it's it's to say, like with confidence, that when, when the scripture says it, and I tell you it, like, that's not me, man. You go ahead and call me all the things you want to call me. But he who hears these words hears Jesus, not me. Right? So it's, it's, it'd be, for my part, it's a way to try to remind myself of the gravity of the, the office I hold and how, how reverently I should treat the work. Um, but I've never done it, right? I've just never done it. I mean, the cost involved and, you know, what it would do, um, if I did it, you know, on the forum, I'd have to definitely have some conversations at the church about it. Uh, I think by and large, they'd, they'd get it. Um, but at the same time, it's just not been there. Uh, it's something for me to do, but that's what I would do. I would get either my, uh, my dragons turned into archangels, or I would get the, uh, the kind of like the shield crescent or the, how do I say it? Like the, uh, yeah, the crest, like a crest style office of the ministry keys thing uh, on my forearm. But I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever do it. It's it's just not that pressing to me. It's like it's always it's something I think about as cool. Sure, it'd be fun. Um, the main reason, again, for the, the forearm, because I, I did this one on the shoulder to hide it on purpose because like tattoos say something. Right. And and so, you know, if you're if you're wanting to get jobs, you know, it's probably good not to put a tattoo on your face and then go and. I mean, it depends where you can get a job, but it's it's different. It's definitely different. Um, and so, like, your forearm is going to be the same way, right? Can you cover it or not? Yeah, you can wear long sleeves. I didn't want to wear long sleeves all the time, so I, I put it there. So thinking about putting it on my forehead means I'm like, I'm going to show this tattoo off everywhere I go. It's going to be sitting there, and it's going to be these keys, right? Well, part of my thinking in that is that's a conversation starter, one way or the other, right? Uh, or at the very least, it sends a signal. And you imagine a guy with a collar you know, walking in and he's, he's got that on, uh, and he's buying coffee at the local shop with a bunch of pagans around. 
so it's, 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 I'm seeing it as a tool potentially, but again, I, I don't know. I don't know, you know, what's worth the time and what's not. But I like the question, and I say, you know, you're in freedom, and, and your ideas there, they're all great. And the Trinity Shield is fine. There's Orthodox pastors I know who have the Trinity Shield tattooed on them, and that, that's cool. It's, I've just never found it to be that useful for teaching because of the, the, the light error that's in it. And uh, like into closed communion, I've been leaning more and more toward wondering how to teach things that don't make sense. So closed communion, it makes sense, but it's hard to teach it, and it doesn't make sense when we teach it to a lot of people. And then the Trinity is the same thing, right? The Trinity is doesn't make sense to anybody, even those who think it makes sense. Um, <clears throat> and that's okay. I'm perfectly fine with that because God is marvelous, like, like literally marvelous. He is a marvel. He's unbelievable. Uh, his identity is beyond our understanding. So uh, for me, that that uh, that shield kind of takes away the marvel a little bit. It, it, it's the opposite. You're trying to explain it, right? And you don't explain a marvel. Uh, you just you just marvel at it. Uh, uh, so so I kind of would lean away from that. But um, I feel like there's something else I should say about you know, you know more first, first article side of this. But use wisdom. I mean that's it. Use wisdom. Like Christianity and our freedom is not just to do whatever you want. It's to apply the freedom of conscience you have in not having to justify yourself to being the best person you can be. And because you don't have to convince yourself you're good every morning and can instead be evil and forgiven, you have a certain new perspective on how you can take on everything around you. You don't have to do it to justify yourself. You can just do it because it's good. You can do it because it's good. And that means both force yourself to do it because it's good and you know you should. And that means just do it because you know it's good and you want to do it. And the tattoo is going to fall into that somewhere. But within a, within a realm in which it's not like, well, just go get all the tattoos you want. Do whatever you want. I mean, no, nothing in life is like that. You want to think long and hard about a decision that's going to be with you the rest of your life. I mean, you're, you're not taking I mean, I guess you could take it off. I don't want to take it off. I don't hate it. I just wouldn't do it again. And if I could go back to myself right at that, I mean, I had so many other problems at that point in my life. If I could go back to myself at that moment and say, hey, man, um, do the one that I want now, I wouldn't have done it. I mean, like, what does that mean? That's weird. Um, if I'd said, hey, man, don't do it. No. I mean, so it's important that it's part of my journey, I guess. That's part of why I still haven't covered it. It's like, well, I guess it's part of my journey. Um, it reminds me of times that, uh, that I don't want to go back to. Um, so, you know, it, it, use wisdom. Think Long and hard, and, and 25, man. You don't have any wisdom until you're 25. Sorry. I know that's mean. That's so mean, Pastor Fisk. You told the people who are babies that they don't think straight yet. And I'm, I'm 22. I'm not a baby. Well, I, you're not a baby. You're a man. You're a baby man. You know, a baby man? Like like a baby boy is baby baby. You're, you're just a baby man. You're a young pup. Go look at puppies. Watch them sometime. That's what men that are 22 do. You do it with your brain, though, like in your hands. You're running around everywhere. <laughs> you know, you're, just, you're so excited and trying all this stuff, and you don't realize you're like smelling and stepping in your own poo. Right? So God bless you. We need more of you, young men. I'm speaking to you because you're important. You're valuable. You're a gift to the world. Um, but part of that means learning who you are, where you are, which means not thinking too highly of your own head until it's you – know, you know, finished forming. I mean, this is just straight chemistry. You're not done forming your brain until you're 25. The frontal lobe is not finished. Why? Is why drinking heavily in college? Not a great idea. Doing drugs heavily any time in that era, you're just, just messing with the development of your head. So be patient. 
You know, 25 is coming. It'll be here soon enough. You're going to wonder where it all went. Just enjoy being young and free and dumb for a little bit without doing too many permanent things. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right on. So, hey, everybody, 91 of you watching. This is a new high for us here, and yet 32 ups and one down. <laughs> um, but you know what? We need downs. If we get downs going, that means we got people we want to reach watching. Uh, but I need more than 32 ups, my friends. That 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 is, uh, that is, uh. I don't know. I feel I, I'm offended. I, I am personally offended. You're causing division in the body. Do you understand this? We're just trying to unify here. And, and you're dividing the body because you're not giving me enough ups. I, I just, it's all there is to it. <laughs> all right. So I got to take my time. 8.15. So we got about 30 minutes left here. Uh, I got one more big one from the week that came in through the website. Uh, I always want to try to get to the comments as well. But I think this one is really worth spending some time on. Briefly, at the same time, caveat... We're heading into new waters here. I am not a pro at where we're going. We're going to see what happens. We're going to see what happens. And uh, there you go, 42. That's a little better. We can break 50 easy. All right. So question is this. It concerns Zechariah 14. I have spoken to my pastor, but I know there are many more former pre-mill dispies, right? So rapture believers uh, out there who still struggle with this passage, Zechariah 14. Can you unpack the text so everyone can hear it? If it wasn't for the no-holds-barred videos from you and Rev Hans Feeney, I have trouble seeing his as no-holds-barred. They're more like satire, but that's okay. I would probably still be Wasting Away in Baptist Land. That sounds like a, a good song. Wasting away again in Anabaptist Land. Thank you for your hard work and dedication to the faith. You're welcome. Um, so Zechariah 14, we're heading into some semi-uncharted waters for me. That's the wrong one. Uh, let's try this again. Yeah, no, that was the right one. We want, oh, come now. That's what we want right there. Um, somewhat uncharted waters. I, I know the Minor Prophets better than I used to, but I'm still learning them. And this happens to be like one of the last ones at the very back. And Zechariah is a weird book. It's a super weird book. We're at 45. I need five more people so we can do it. Um, uh, ups, give me ups. Uh, so what we're going to do here, and, and this is without me having spent really time doing the digging I would like to do in a text like this to really give you it because there's a lot more. And for that, by the way, go Google Kyle and Dalich. And now the spelling's so weird. Uh, it's K-I-E-L. If you do Kyle Old Testament commentary, it should show up. You can view it for free. It's every chapter in the whole Old Testament. There are some archaeological things that should be updated, but otherwise it's a very, very good attack on these kinds of things. And in my experience, their understanding of Zechariah is very, very good. Uh, I have not read them on chapter 14 yet, but Zechariah is apocalyptic. It is all sorts of weird commeshing of images together. They are pulling sometimes from other prophets or other Old Testament ideas. They get pushed forward into Revelation as well. Uh, so it is, it's not a standalone book is what I'm saying. It really doesn't stand by itself. And if you try to treat this thing like the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to end up with some trouble. You just are. It's not the genre that it's in. It's in the genre of Revelation. And if you're treating Revelation like it's a Sermon on the Mount, which Primo Dispies do, right, you're going to have all sorts of trouble there as well. So I, I don't know that I can undo that entirely for you, though, but we'll, we'll try here. So Zechariah says this. Oh, hold on. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do this, and then we'll go look at this other thing. Zechariah says, listen, 14 verse 1, A day is coming for the Lord when the plunder taken from you will be divided in your presence. But let's just start with, a day is coming for the Lord. That's actually pretty key right there. Uh, the day of the Lord is coming. 
This is a constant theme in the Old Testament. It has one reference point, which is the salvation of the world by God in the future. That reference point in Jesus happens on the cross. The day of the Lord is the day he dies. That is the Old Testament reality. Now, there is another piece to this that's important. The day of the Lord that he dies on is the end of the world, but it only is seen in him. And meanwhile, for the rest of us, it's not seen. It's just told to us that that's what really has happened already. And so we're put in a situation where we have to believe the world already ended in Jesus. And he's already risen with a whole new world there. And yet this one's still going so far as we can see. But he has appointed a day on which he will roll this one up. And what we don't see but believe will become what we see. That phrase also then does have the day of the Lord attached to it. And in the Old Testament, it is talking about that day at the same time as it's talking about the day he dies. So the day of the Lord is actually two days. This kind of it's the straight up way it is. The day of the Lord is two days. The day Jesus died, the day Jesus returns. Now they're going to say, well, how can you say that? That's not fair. It's the day he returns. Okay, so you've just made the whole Old Testament, or at least this passage, not about Jesus' cross, Jesus' death for you. And that's where we divide, right? I think it all points to him. And you're wanting to point to something else. It is him, his return. Yes, okay, fine. But you, you just don't have, well, you don't have the capacity in the rest of the passages to make the claims you make about that. These passages are so clearly about him. And I think this is going to happen in this text. So we'll keep going. The day is coming for the Lord. The plunder taken from you will be divided in your presence. I'll gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city will be taken. The houses plundered. The women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off. That's terrifying. Hold on. When is he saying this? When is he talking about this thing? And this is pretty key here, right? This is a great map I found. You can find more of these, but this one lines up the kings with the prophets and the nations around them and the timeline. And if you look on here for Zechariah, you're going to find out he's down here, right? I don't know if you can see my mouse on the screen or not. It looks like you can. He's down here, you know, equivalent with Zerubbabel's lifetime and various other governors before the return from exile under Nehemiah. You know, uh, I, sorry, yeah. Return from exile under Zerubbabel. Hold on. Yeah, Temple Restored. This is when he starts being governor. So Zerubbabel was born before this, but he starts being governor, it looks like, if I'm reading the chart right, uh, here, right? And it's after that, when they they tried building the temple. Here's the, oh, wow, look at this. Temple started, what is that? Temple destroyed. What is this thing here? Is that Daniel? Oh, that is Daniel. Okay, that makes sense. I'm not quite sure how the timeline's teaching us about the temple lineup with these names, but... As I'm looking for, isn't it Joel? Where's Joel? No, no, he's up there. I feel like there's another minor prophet. Maybe it's just Haggai. I'm confusing Haggai with somebody else. In any case, so you only have these three prophets after the exile. But this is really important. This is after the exile. Think of how weird it is for what he just said to be happening. I will gather the nations to battle Jerusalem. The city will be taken, houses plundered. Everyone will go into exile. Wait a minute, we just got back, right? Look at this. We got back like 20 years ago. You know, there's, uh, we're not even here yet. The temple's not even done yet, right? Uh, I mean, maybe there was finished right here and Zechariah is somewhere in this space. We don't really know when he was, he was talking necessarily. So uh, the temple's barely been finished. Now you're saying it's all over again. How does that make any sense? What are you talking about? Um, so th that is important. But when, when then, when did this happen? When did God gather the nations to battle against Jerusalem, take the city, plunder the houses, have the women, women raped, and half the city go into exile with the rest of the people not be cut off? When did that happen? Well, it's not on the New, New Testament or Old Testament here, but, but it happened after Jesus. 
Right? Jesus dies, Jesus rises, Jesus ascends into heaven. But before he did, on the Mount of Olives, he says that the temple is going to be destroyed. And it's going to happen in the lifetime of the apostles. And they're all going to see it. And they should leave the city when they see the signs. And the signs are the signs of the Roman legions coming to the gates of Jerusalem. And then that happened in 70 AD. It's just, it's just unavoidable. It happened. So first, if you're going to say this is not about that, I need something that tells me why it would be about something else in the future. And then why would he not tell us about that? Because it happened. And Jesus seems to focus on it. And, and, and get this here. Then at that time, the Lord will fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. As those nations are being destroyed, the Lord is also going to go out to fight. Go out. When a king goes out from the city, he doesn't stay in the city, right? So when did the Lord, the God of Israel, go out to fight against the nations? Think Matthew 28. Go into all nations, baptize, teach. I am with you. Boom. Yeah? Boom. As on a day of battle. That's why I said earlier, we're at war. A war of words, a war of truth. On that day, this is just too ironic for me. Excuse me. On that day, he will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem to the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. Now, this next part gets really confusing, but, but seriously, who is it talking about? The Lord will go out to fight. He, the Lord, will stand on the Mount of Olives. Has that happened? Did, did it, in fact, happen at that very moment when he was talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD to his apostles the week before he died? Oh, yeah. Oh, look. It is about Jesus back then. So I have something now in the text that tells me this is not about the end of the world at all. This is about Jesus when he came, which is what the old prophets are saying. They're talking, he's going to come. See, the big thing with the rapture people, the pre-mills, right? The, the big issue they have is they don't believe the Old Testament prophets are about Jesus coming. They think it's about something else. And sometimes it's Jesus coming again. And sometimes it's a whole bunch of other stuff. But they don't think, they, they really don't think that the prophets came to tell the future about Jesus coming. And that he is fulfilled in Christ. They don't believe that all the prophecies are yes in Jesus. That they've been fulfilled in him, as Paul says. That's the problem. Right? That's the problem. Is it that we have nothing about the future now that we've been told? No, no, that's not it. That's not it. But there's a perspective here where you go to the Old Testament not to learn about the end of the world outside of Jesus. You go to learn about the end of the world in Jesus on the cross. And then from there, Jesus on the cross, you listen to what he said after he rose from the dead or what his apostles said after he rose from the dead. And you learn about the end of the world there, not way back here in the weeds, which it really is. Mount Olives being split in two, this part is where it gets weird. Like, what does that mean? The mountain has not been split in two. So maybe we're still waiting for an earthquake over there, make a large valley. Half the mountain will go north, half to the south. Yeah, but see, you know what happened when the Christians fled from Jerusalem before it was destroyed? <laughs> uh, they didn't all go to the same place. And you end up with a whole bunch of them down in Alexandria and Egypt. And you end up with a whole bunch of them up in Antioch. They go north and they go south. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty straight up history. Um, you will flee through my mountain valley because the mountain valley will reach to Azal. I don't know the reference, so I can't help with that much. Um, yes, you will flee just as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. But that's exactly what Jesus says, you know. Uh, when you see these signs, lift up your heads, your salvation is drawing near. You know, flee to the mountains. Flee, get out of the city. Woe to you who are pregnant and bearing children in those days. It'll be harder for you. The Lord will have to cut those days short so that some of you can be saved, right? All of that is about the destruction of Jerusalem. In 70 AD. And that's exactly what it's describing here. Uh, then the Lord, my God, will come. All the holy ones will come with him. And you're like, wait, but the world didn't end. I didn't see him come. Are you sure? Oh, wait, you're a sacramentarian, aren't you? <laughs> with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name. Holy, holy, holy. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here, take ye. This is my body. The Lord, my God, will come. 
All the powers of heaven with him. I, you know, so I think it's the Lord's Supper. I think it's the church. I think it's what it means to be church. He's here already. He's not gone. Why the church is dying even though Jesus is alive. We don't think he's here. That's why. We don't think he's here. And it's changed the way we act. That's why. The Lord my God will come. Take eat. On that day there will be no light. That's interesting. You know, like like the sun turned to darkness on a Good Friday? Like that, maybe? Oh, no, that's too easy? It's got to be later? That one doesn't count? I mean, at what point At what point do I need the verses? I mean, how many verses do I need to directly connect to the actual physical life of Jesus the week he dies before you can just not even worry about it anymore? Oh, yeah, obviously it's about that. Right, how many does it take? There will be no light. I mean, come on. Uh, the light sources will freeze over. That's interesting, what does that mean? But don't read too much on the word freeze. You would need to do a whole Hebrew deep study on what this means and how colloquial this is for us particularly. They didn't have freezers. And frankly, you know, the, the amount of ice that you would see in Judea was not very much. So, so you know, what does that really mean? Uh, the idea is that it means there's going to be no light, right? That you won't be able to see. It will be a unique day known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there will be light, Right? So did the sun come back out as they're burying the body on that Good Friday, right? Was the Sabbath rest beginning? Think about it. That's all about that. And to try to make this about something else is just to reject Jesus for some weird reason. Why would you do that? To protect your system that you have to have to convince yourself there's a rapture so that you can try to work with the nation state of Israel? I, I, I mean, there, there's a lot of system behind this, but still, you don't get hurt by recognizing, oh, look, it's Good Friday. Like that never hurts Christians to see Good Friday. <laughs> You know, on that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem. What happened on the cross? What happened? What did Jesus say? You know, a few months before this, during the great day, the highest day of the feast, it come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I, I will, as it is written in the scriptures, living water will flow from his heart. And then what happens when he's pierced on the cross? What do they pierce? His heart. What comes out? Blood and water. Blood and water, which John says testifies. These three agree, the spirit, the water, and the blood. Living water flowed out of Jerusalem when it flowed out of his heart on the ground. Paid for the sins of the world. Half toward the east, half toward the west, continuing to summer and to winter. So everywhere, right? It's all going to all the world in all times, all seasons. The river which flows in the city of God is Jesus. It's Jesus. Uh, the Lord, his flesh and blood. His baptism. The Lord will be king over all the earth. I mean, when was he crowned? <laughs> When was he first crowned by humans? When do we put a crown on his head? You can say it's a different crown. Okay, it doesn't say that. When was he anointed? Baptism in the Jordan River, really. Yeah. But then also initiated through the, the trial of his flesh and blood. Yeah, the crown he wears all eternity is the scars on his head. So he's, he's already king. I mean, you know he's king, right? King Jesus. So he, he's already king. We're not waiting for that. Why do we think we're waiting for that? He's omnipresent, omnipotent human king. Stop waiting. It's here. Uh, on that day, the Lord will be the one... And his name will be the one. That's interesting. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, the whole land will be changed to a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be elevated to a rainer place. Benjamin Gate, yada, yada. It's using old language to describe the, the beauty and simplicity of what will come in, in Christ. It will be inhabited, not devoted to destruction. Jerusalem will dwell in security. So what does Christ achieve for us but everlasting life and immortality? Um, this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike the peoples who have waged war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot. So a little, little bit of a hell picture there, I suppose. Eyes in their sockets. Wow. Tongues in their mouths. Oof. On that day, there will be great panic. They will see each other by the hand, hand of each other, raise up against the neighbor. 
Even Judah will fight against Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, gold, silver, etc. Uh, in the same way, the plague will afflict the horses, the mules, camels, donkeys, animals of the planet in those camps. So, so well, what's this about? How is this connected to Jesus on the cross? Right? Here's the one where it's like, this is a little bit tougher. And yet, if you see this as the distinction between the believer and the unbeliever, and how uh, Christianity makes you the enemy of the world so that even Judah, that is the Jews now, right, literally, uh, do not believe in the Zion who is Christ, and that the war of words we were talking about earlier is very much at play in this picture. Then every survivor who is left from all the nations went up against Jerusalem. The nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the Lord, the, uh, the king of the armies. The king, the Lord of the armies, celebrate the festival of shelters. Now that's interesting. I would need to know more about that. That must be booths, the Feast of Booths, uh, which is the one at which he says, I think, um, you know, come to me, all you weary, uh, the water one. Uh, come to me, I will give you water of life. Ah, living water? Yeah, yeah, that one. And I am the light of the world, that one too. That's the Feast of Booths. Um, so, but the survivors from these nations, right? So, go ye into all nations, baptize, teach. So, we have people being brought out of the nations, and they will go to the true Jerusalem, which is the Lord's Supper. Year after year, he will be with us, celebrating his life-giving reality, Right? But if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, it's it, it, how does he say it to the woman at the well? Right? A time is coming when people worship in spirit and truth. So to go to Jerusalem now doesn't mean to go to the plot of land. It means to go to Jesus physically, himself. He is it. Again, the supper. Uh, if, if they don't do believe in him, no rain will fall on them. Now, I mean, again, metaphorical language. This is about faith, right? This is about preaching. This is about life. If the family of the clans of Egypt will not go up and enter in, they'll be struck by the So it's the same kind of thing. He's using pictures of that present time to describe the battle between light and darkness in the New Testament era. Cloudily done. It's not as clear as the New Testament gives us. The New Testament becomes very clear on this matter, which is why you shouldn't use this to overturn it. In that day, this will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. The cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sprinkling bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem, Judah, will be holy to the Lord of armies. All who sacrifice will come and take some of them and cook them. In that day, there will only be Canaanite in the house of the Lord of armies. So, yeah, the, the, full, the full giving of salvation and perfection in paradise uh, in Jesus on the cross, absolutely done for faith alone, is very much what this is about. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe that's not sufficient, but... Yeah, then you're into Malachi, and the last thing Malachi says is, my messenger is going to come, and he'll tell you the guy who is the one when he comes. Kaboom, done, right? You're in. It's finished. It is finished. But why? Why? Yeah, the, the thing about pre-mails is they don't believe it's finished. Sorry, guys. I believe it's finished. I just don't see it, but it's finished. I believe it. And there's a massive difference in those two things and that approach. All right, 834, I have ignored you poor, beautiful people on the side. And so I'm going to come and uh, see who's there. And uh, Zephan just popped up for me. Love the link picture. Rufisk, uh, what is your opinion when a theology teacher has students make memes out of Bible verses to teach God's word and teach how to be a witness through social media? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think that is a, that's exactly, how do I say this? A lot of times Christians have a good idea, but they don't bother to learn about what they're going to try to do. And so they end up with a really bad idea. That's kind of how I would see this. What are memes for? Are memes there for um, 
easygoing, friendly, pious words. I mean, it can be, you can, you can kind of do it with some Psalms. That genre of meme, right, is like the, my life is happy and I'm okay meme, right? But that's not really the primary genre of meme. That's like the, I'm a 40-year-old, ladies, I love you, but it's like, I'm a 40-year-old lady meme, okay? It's pretty narrow. There isn't a wide demographic that's really sharing those memes. It's, it's a specific group of people, a niche, and there's nothing wrong with that. But just know, that's, that's kind of not the main thing. The main thing a meme does is it makes fun of something. It's satire. And our kids love it. They love the satire. And they play with it. So, sure, if you're going to, if you want to use memes to talk about the faith, you can, but you got to know you're going to be doing satire. Otherwise, you're going to end up with just really bad memes, you know, and, and people might share it, but you just, you're, you're just going to, it's just not going to be good memes. And, and then there's this thing where, so you're taking and you're making this thing that's supposed to be satire and you're putting holy things into it as holy things and hoping that somehow it doesn't get, you know, which is stronger, the message or the medium itself. And that's an open question. We haven't even really had that debate as a civilization about any of this stuff. Marshall McLuhan talked about it. And we have a couple of people who are convinced of it, that the, the medium is the message. I'm not sure I'm that far on it, but I definitely think the medium impacts the message tremendously. And so... You know, what are you doing when you're trying to use a joking medium to say something serious and pious? And is that even the conversation that's ha happening, you know, in, in this and studying, you know, does your meme work or does it just look like some sanctimonious Christian being stupid again with, you know, all the media? Which is how they see us when we just throw this stuff out there and make these terrible movies and whatnot. They, they see us as idiots. So... Um, I've been doing a meme campaign for Without Flesh for the last couple of weeks. I've made the bulk of those memes. There's a couple others that have been submitted, but um, I've made the bulk of those memes. But I've been very intentionally not putting Bible verses on it. And, and I'm, I'm really being a snark about it. And then it is, I, I think it's all in good humor and fun because that's what memes are. They're, they're meant to be snark and you're supposed to laugh. And even if it's like you're the butt of the joke, you're supposed to be like, haha, that's funny. And you realize that you could just flip it all around and it would still work. Like with you as the winner and the other guy as the loser and it's okay, right? So I'm rubber, you're glue, bounce off me, stick on you kind of thing. And we all just laugh at it. That's cool. So what are you going to do with that for Christianity? I've been using it just to try to brand without flesh. That's it. Strictly. Nothing more. I don't really, I mean, there's, there's messages that are there that if you're like a hardcore Lutheran, you're like, that's pretty funny. But by and large, they're not that good. The ones I've made, they're not that good. There's a couple funny ones. Um, but they're just, I'm just trying to brand it. I'm just trying to get you to see it. No, um, I'm not really trying to, I don't think some sacramentarian is going to, going to read my meme and be convinced by the argument in my meme to stop being a sacramentarian. I, I just don't see that happening. Uh, those who are already starting to question it might find that and someone might read the book because of it. Right. But the, the meme is just not going to do that. So what do you think the meme with the Bible verse on it's going to do? What, what's your agenda with this thing? I'm going to spend time on it. Uh, what's it going to do? What, what is, uh, <laughs> what's the one I saw? What, what is Robert Downey Jr. rolling his eyes What's he? What's it? What verse are you gonna put with that one? You know, so that's my question. A lot of times we have these ideas. It's like seems like a really good idea. There's this new thing, Christians should use it, and I'm like, yeah, true. So let's study it first in its context for what it is, rather than assume we know what it is, because we always do, and we do it poorly. We do it poorly and on the cheap. Um, so that, that's that's my opinion. I think it's a great idea, um, but probably not a great idea too. <laughs> It kind of depends. Um, how would you do it? I, I don't know. I don't know. All right, Mrs. Harris. I, too, think that would be great. There are many of us. Oh, that must be that one. The best medium media is the one that gets out of the way of the message. 
a group that come out of addiction and baggage have been pulled out and brought to the knowledge of the truth. So that must, that's probably not a direct connection there, but maybe it is. Um, yeah, memes of false teachers. Yes, they do. Loving Jesus. I agree with that. Um, bah, 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 bah. I think you're dealing with some sort of, uh, I'm trying to figure out what you're really, what you're dealing with. Um, where's Jimmy Dean's comment? I was in that mood for a while. What got me, I was realizing that it wasn't consistent with scripture. What movement? You guys are having a good conversation over there. Ooh, I didn't mean to do that. Um, but I'm not quite sure how to respond to that, uh, Ms. Harris. So um, I'd love to I'd love to pick up on that, but I'm not sure how to do it. And I, I want to keep going, Jadine. He just, he just wrote, keep going. But see, I'm going to have to keep going in five minutes to go uh, talk with a young gentleman about my church and whether or not it's the right place for him, which I'm very excited about doing. And after that, I get to talk with two other young people about my church and getting married all at the same time, which is also very exciting. Uh, so I, I got five minutes and then I got to go. Um, like T. Ray's, who says, got to go rock on, Rafisk. Oh, oh, I don't make that sign much. It's like a rock on sign. It always kind of scares me, but that's silly, isn't it? Um, let's see here. Is there here? Uh, I thought I saw social media as something. Um, but I'm just going to go ahead. Thanks for getting us to 60 likes. Appreciate that. Um, and uh, oh, we lost 10 viewers, though. Goodbye, everybody. Uh, I'm going to go to one more question of my own thoughts here to close the day. Oh, yeah. Let's let's do that. Um, all right. So if you're watching any of the Knowing God stuff, which is a live stream of my Wednesday night, adult class, child class, family study class. I don't even know what to call it. It's knowing God. We're trying to know God together as a congregation. It's it's my attempt to create something other than the worship space, other than Sunday morning Bible study, that we can engage talking about Jesus together and so that we can invite people into that and and talk about Jesus with others who are new to it and be comfortable and not have to worry too much about communion you know, basically. Um, and, and if, so if you're watching that, I said at the last one, and, and I, I think this is really important. It's sort of like an open theology thing. Like I'm experimenting in that a little bit. And, and so I really want feedback on it. Not so much in like your heretic, Pastor Fisk, but, but more like in, in the, um, you know, is this, is this way of talking helpful? Is this way of trying to wrestle with where we are in context helpful? Uh, do you find yourself able to latch on to some of these words and use them? So for example, yet again, knowing God being just the word theology, but in English instead of in Greek. I mean, it's just, that's all that it is, right? It's just been translated. And we say this word theology and it means kind of a different thing now. It's not really Greek. It means like some scholastic study of things when the whole point of the word is not a scholastic study, but to truly know who God is according to his word. So, so knowing God is one of these words, and I'm finding that one really helpful. I'm using it more and more, kind of dropping it into my sentences. Sometimes I have to pause for a second to, to catch myself and say, oh, I, I want to say it this way, uh, so I don't get to be as fast as I like to be, um, which, you know, I just kind of, I just am a little, you know, too fast <laughs> sometimes. Um, uh, so, so knowing God, that's out there. I'm pretty comfortable with that one, but I'm curious your thoughts about that as well. Uh, but then... There's two others, and the one the one I'm I'm really wanting to field test hard right now is the word the phrase uh, the animal nature the animal nature of mankind, and I'm starting to say that in place of sin, not because I want to get rid of the word sin. I just want people to understand the word sin, and they don't. And if I just keep saying it over and over again, that doesn't help. And so I want to talk about what they experience and what they see in terms that are 
in their experience, so then they can apply that to the word sin. So the animal nature of mankind, the way that the, the, the Middle Ages would say it, they wouldn't say animal, they would have said carnal, carnal nature of mankind. But it's really not too different, really. And if you think about what anima, animus, the, the word that comes out of Latin, it's about the, the, the inspiriting of flesh, right? An animal is substance that is spirited, is animated, yeah, it's a rock that moves. Uh, and, and so um, the animal nature of mankind, this, is, this has to do with our first article reality, that we are embodied spirits. And it also has to do with the fall of that and what happened to our animal nature instinctually, the instinctual evil of mankind. So along with animal nature, I think inst- instinctual wickedness, instinct- I used to say critical, right? Uh, the instinctual wickedness of mankind. I think that's helpful too. But I, I, that's one where I'm, I'm like, it's new and I'm throwing it around, and I'm really curious how it's hitting. And there was a neat story that came back to me of somebody, someone close to me, who was talking about sharing with an extended relative and talking about raising children. And this extended relative was very upset or challenged by some of the evils of her (laughs) three-year-old and not able to understand it. And to talk about that child's animal nature uh, was helpful. And the same is actually true of talking about uh, procreative tendencies and, and, you know, how women like say they don't want kids until they're 37 and then they don't believe it. I don't know why you ladies don't believe it. When you're 37, you're going to be like, I want more kids. It's, it's just going to happen. And if you have stopped like long before that, it's going to really bite you hard. It's, I've, I've heard the story too many times now to be like, it's just an anecdote. Just, just know that. But the way I heard it described recently, again, by someone else not connected to my conversation was uh, this person said, I realized that I'm an animal and that as an animal, I'm supposed to make children. <laughs> Whoa, genius, you know, uh, but it's so true. It's so true. And so much of our present age is trying to pretend we're not animals. Uh, and I don't mean that like we're the same as the animals. We're the kings of the animals, yeah? but, but, but we're, we're animated nature. Yeah. And so uh, to, to, to understand that and then to see the instinctual wickedness of it, that the animal nature of man before anything else now has become concupiscence, instinctual, ah, concupiscence, instinctual wickedness. Uh, that's a pretty key thing. So that's one I'm throwing out there. And then just this morning, I was pondering again. I, I, I talked about this. Where was this? This was maybe in Knowing God as well. Might have been a Sunday morning study here. But I've talked about this with Wolf Mueller on the podcast a little bit. The body and soul duality of the Gnostic Platonic Greek thought that most Christians assume is what the Bible teaches is something that's a problem in a lot of ways. But I don't know how to fix it because the Bible definitely uses the word pneuma, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, suke, soul in the New Testament. And it uses this word nefesh in the Old Testament that can be translated as soul, it can be translated as spirit. And that, that's the same thing for, for suke. It can be those things too. But it does get translated as soul sometimes, and it's not technically a wrong translation, but it is kind of like contextually a really wrong translation for modern English. And so how do we like address this idea that, that the way we use the word soul, you don't really have a soul the way we use the word soul, as if it's something other than your body, like some other reality. So when, when the Old Testament talks about things that we translate as your spirit or your soul, it's referring to your, your nephesh, which I remember being told this way back then. I thought that, that word just will never work. But the word nephesh is most closely life. Life, spirit, life, essence, life, body and life. So your body without any life in it, that's got a problem, right? Uh, but your body with life in it, you're fine. But where's my life? I can't point to my life. There's no life apart from my body. My body is alive. 
So to think of, and I'm throwing this out there as open theology, I'm willing to be debated on this, uh, but to think of, instead of saying body and soul, saying body and life, that's not well with my life. That's not well with my life. Um, it, it doesn't, that, that phrase doesn't work as well as body and life, I think works okay, right? Um, uh, but, you know, I don't have a soul, I have a life. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? So that's out there for you all now. And that's a good way to close up this episode. You may or may not hear more of that. If you like that kind of talk, knowing God is the class in which I'm really trying to wrestle with that for the sake of our jargon. I'm trying to create localized jargon to bring people to the older jargon uh, gently and, and one step at a time. Um, knowing God is the class where I do that a little bit more. All right. So again, uh, without flesh is printing. It's printed. It's shipping soon. I believe it's the 14th Valentine's day. I'm not sure. Uh, the newsletter will always be telling you about this kind of news, uh, right up front. And of course the newsletter, as I said before is, oh man, I just, I'm just so grateful to be part of it. I'm not, it's not even me anymore. And it's, it's really cool. I get to influence it and it, it, it it's going to be on the website. You know, redfist.com is going to be on the website there. So you can, you can just see it there right Rather than subscribe, but you can subscribe. It'll show up in your inbox every Monday morning. So that's down below, uh, down below there. Patreon, of course, if you like what I do here, Patreon helps a lot. It's all connected to the release of the podcast, but it enables this stuff to continue on. If you prefer to listen to watch, you can always get things like Saturday Morning Chill in a podcast format later in the week, my sermons and all that at redfisk.com. No, redfisk.podbean.com, something like that. You can click to that from uh, redfist.com. I'll get you there eventually and subscribe. Just go to iTunes, uh, The Mad Christian. You'll find it that way as well. Um, of course, there's always so much more beyond all of this, but I think those are the ones uh, for this morning. Is there any more? There's got to be more. But I got to go. Hey, y'all. It's Saturday. It's not really early. It's kind of early. But it's still Saturday morning, and we've been chilling. I really appreciate that. I do not know how to say that. Trying to work on how to say it and get that kind of that closing piece that always hits well. What I do know, what I do know is that at the end of it, I'm supposed to say, hmm. Oh, what is it? Hmm. Yeah. It's just, I can't decide if I should say the whole phrase or, or just that part. So don't wallow in the muck, my friends rock on. Like that's, that's the ending, right? But is that, should I just say that? Should I just say that and go? Like every time? Just do like that? Isn't it fun to be on the ground? You gotta like respond and tell me how silly I look. Um, I want, I want to try to, I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking to practice it like I was going to record it or something. So give me a sec. Yeah, I think, I think, I, I, I wish I could, I, I got to have it known well enough so that whatever I was saying before I could get right into it. What was I saying before? I was talking about um, Patreon, right? So I'll try it from there. Uh, so, you know, Patreon, it totally helps with the show. It helps keep everything going. It's how I can buy new microphones. I just had to order a new one again because of yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. But the point is, is super helpful. All the same, I've got to go. Don't mollow. Don't mollow. I got all the way to that. And then I said, don't mollow. Don't wallow in the muck, my friends. Find the button. Rock on.